So, hey guys, we have a special episode for you today. We're going to get a little bit more on the techie side and in depth. We're talking with Dr. Troy Klein, who's a virologist, an expert with viruses and studies. He's also an instructor at Chico State. We do get a little down some rabbit holes and intense on some of this. So if you get any questions, you can always reach out to the nerds. You can get a hold of me at Knack Attack Fit. You can get a hold of me at Noel Cast Iron Fit. And if need be, we can help connect you with the doctor. And one thing we do want to talk about is online training. Let's talk about that. So with online training, we have a special going on right now, four weeks or one month for $100. Now the big special change up to it that is now official is you get programming and nutrition guidance by me and Noel. And me. The Quadzilla. Yes, yes, himself. I'll be helping out with the nutrition portion of it and... Of course, Andrew will be doing the, the, you know, designing the programming itself. And we coordinate the two together, so I'm not having you go through shred, bulk, whatever, and Noel's having you do the opposite. It is customized to you and coordinated. Yes, and we can adapt to the quarantine. We're not going to need a barbell for it. Whatever you have, we'll be able to design something for you guys so you guys keep, you know, staying healthy at home. Something else I want to bring up, guys, actually, is I am working with Basis to help design online training with them too it's not online personal training they have classes that they'll be releasing they have online mobility classes online conditioning classes strength classes kin stretch too right kin stretch is yeah yeah. it's in there in the mobility um so they hit different aspects uh depending on what you want to do and i'll be actually helping with the strength portion with with the freaking god himself grayson strange and if you guys want to know more about Basis, you can look them up on Instagram. At, at Basis Health and Performance. And you can always look at our last episode where we interviewed Basis. Let's go. All right, Dr. Klein, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, well, first off, thank you for taking time to do all this here. I know you got a million things going on being a professor and all and schools transitioning to online. I can imagine things have been a little chaotic for you, right? It's been uh, it's been a little chaotic, a little bit stressful. Yeah, I think yeah. we're I think we're good to go. Though. Classes start online Wednesday. Yeah. Awesome. So, so, so we, we just want to emph- emphasize to everybody listening out there. Uh, Dr. Klein teaches at Chico State and he is an actual virologist. So can you please uh, just let our listeners know what is a virologist? Yeah. Uh, yeah so virologists are scientists who um, specialize in the study of viruses. So this is kind of this is his yeah. thing right here. So uh, then uh, definitely a. Uh, I imagine it sparked a little interest, right? The coronavirus, with everything's going on. I imagine you've been a little invested in it. Yep. Yeah. So, um, what is um, what is it exactly? Yeah. What's what's going on? Well, I mean, are you asking viruses in general? Do you want to sort of take a bird's eye view first and talk yeah. about what viruses are? Yeah, definitely. Um, Let's so, get into that. Yeah, viruses are um, they're. They're very, very small. Technically, they're not even alive. They're a lot smaller than bacteria. In fact, there are many viruses that actually infect bacteria. And um, they're just, they're, they're, they're genes. So they have a genome. Um, sometimes that genome is made up of DNA, just like the, the genetic material of our own cells. And quite often, that genome is made up of a related molecule called RNA. The coronaviruses 
are RNA viruses. They have an RNA genome similar to the influenza viruses. So viruses, unlike bacteria, if they're on that doorknob or on your kitchen countertop, they can't grow and, and divide there. But they can remain alive there for some period of time, uh, maybe even several days. Viruses need a, a living host cell in order to replicate and make more copies of themselves. So, I mean, they sound like 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 the like almost a, like a computer virus. Almost, well, it's also a lot like a a parasite. They're, yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, when we say parasite, we often think of uh, worm infections and uh, malaria, those kinds of things. So, viruses are different types of organisms, but they are parasites in that they they get into our cells, they take over our cells, and repurpose the machinery of our cells to make more copies of the virus genome, more copies of the virus proteins. And then uh, everything assembles into an infectious virus virus particle, and gets released from that infected cell. And is that what makes them a little bit harder to uh, kill or get rid of compared to bacteria because they are inside yeah. your cells? So yeah, in in a sense. So we do a lot better treating bacterial infections with antibiotics than we do treating virus infections with antiviral drugs. Because if you're designing um, an antiviral drug, ideally you would you would design a drug that targets a, a a protein or some process that is unique to the virus, meaning that it won't interfere with with your normal cellular functions and your normal physiology. But because viruses really just encode the bare minimum, and and they skate by in life by taking advantage of our host or our our cellular machinery. Um, there are fewer targets for antiviral drugs than there are for antibiotics against bacteria. Well, that, uh, let's not help in the case with with the you know what we got going on right now. So the coronavirus. I mean, let's get into that. I've heard SARS mentioned. You know, along yeah. they've been in the same census. Uh, so is it kind of in that family? It is same family. So coronaviruses uh, belong to a family of viruses. The, the the scientific name for it is coronaviridae. SARS coronavirus emerged in 2003. Um, it's a coronavirus, and this this novel coronavirus is actually being called SARS coronavirus 2. That's because it's um, so closely related to the SARS coronavirus that emerged in 2003. Oh wow! So there's been a lot of things going out there. Do you know where it's kind of where this one came from originally? It it looks like it came from bats, and that that was true for SARS coronavirus as well. Um, so a little history on that. And so in 2003, SARS emerged and honestly, that, that, that SARS coronavirus was the first coronavirus that, that, um, really sp spread widely caused severe disease. So there are human coronaviruses that cause human, that cause, uh, common colds. SARS was really the first coronavirus that caused, that was, that was capable of causing severe disease. So people learned pretty quickly that that SARS coronavirus um, was was living naturally in bats, not causing disease in bats. Oh. And probably the virus went from bats to some intermediate species. Uh, the, the the thought is uh, civet cats or, or raccoon dogs in these mm. Chinese markets, and then humans coming in contact with the civet cats would have become infected with SARS. So with the with SARS coronavirus two, the story is probably similar. Um, genetically, the virus is really related 
to SARS-like coronaviruses that have been circulating in bats ever since SARS. Um, and so SARS-2 probably popped into some intermediate species. We don't know what that is yet. And then from there, humans became infected. For, for it to have been able to just be in intermediate species, did it have to go any sort of mutation for that? Or I mean, can viruses thrive in any organism? Yep, there would have been some mutations that adapt the virus for a, a different species. Coronaviruses are particularly good at, at acquiring those kinds of mutations. Is something that the scientists have learned in the last 15 years. The One of the mutations that would have been critical is in a part of the virus that is called the spike. Uh, the spike is a protein. So if you actually, you may have seen these pictures, electronic or the electronic microscope, sorry, electron microscope pictures yeah. of these viruses. And it looks like they have a crown, these spike-like projections coming out. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Those have been kind of everywhere. Yeah. That's the spike protein. That's the protein that mediates attachment of the virus particle to a host cell and allows the virus to get into the host cell. So... Um, the the spike protein determines the different host species that a virus can infect. So if the virus is just circulating in bats, unable to infect other mammals or humans, the spike protein, part, part of that restriction is the spike protein of the virus will bind to bat cells, but it won't bind to uh, civet cat cells or to human cells. Got it. But through random mutation um, and natural selection, um, a, a, a variant of that virus circulating in bats acquired a mutation that um, where the spike protein was now able to bind to human cells. So do viruses normally spread this easily? And what about this virus makes it so catastrophic or why pretty much the state and the country is really freaking yeah. out over it? Yeah, so... The, the rate of virus spread can be uh, spoken of in terms of a, a number called R0 or R0. It's the, the reproductive number. It's an epidemiological number. I'm not an epidemiologist. But from my understanding, this number is, is calculated based on mathematical models. And the number is how many people will become infected. So... Let's back up. If I were to become infected, how, on average, how many other people might I infect um, through exposure? The the R naught for measles virus is ridiculously high, like twelve to fifteen. So, so one person infected with measles would be expected to uh, cause twelve to fifteen other people to become infected. Now, the the R naught number assumes that there are no interventions in place to prevent transmission. Mm. And it assumes that the population is completely susceptible, meaning there's no, uh, there's no memory immune response in the population and there's no vaccination. So the R naught for this SARS coronavirus 2, it's still a little bit in flux because data is, are still coming in and, and we're not quite sure. But it looks right now like the R naught is somewhere around two to 2.5. I've seen some um, papers that suggest it may be even as high as 3.5. So far lower than measles, but a, a two to 2.5 or a three R naught for SARS coronavirus two would put it higher than the seasonal flu. 
So for this yeah. one, the the number just being a little higher is it just because it's not just a novel virus? Is that what's making you know the country kind of freak out a little bit? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's a novel virus. I think that's what make is making people nervous um, for sure. I mean, th- this virus really is. Um, it's a fantastic virus, a very successful virus. If you're defining success as a virus that's able to spread very easily from person to person, part of the reason the virus is spreading so quickly and so widely is because we 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 haven't ever seen it before. We don't have antiviral drugs to treat it. We don't have a vaccine to protect people. Would you say people are overreacting to it, or do you think this is kind of like a worst case scenario for this virus in general? Um, I don't, gosh, I don't, I'm not sure, right? Because we don't, we don't know what don't a worst know case scenario would look like. I mean, th- this virus comes with a, uh, a pretty low case fatality rate, higher, higher than seasonal flu. I'm not trying to downplay it. The overall fatality rate uh, looks like it's going to be lower than SARS in 2003, but higher than the seasonal flu. Well, in in my head, in my head, when I hear worst case scenario, I would I would imagine a virus that can spread as easily as as this novel coronavirus, but that has a much much higher case fatality rate. That would sort of be one of your Hollywood films that gets made on this kind of thing. Yeah, kind of like the one that people have been circulating around recently. But um, yeah, but uh, so there's been a lot of talk about you know just treatments being. Uh, you know, being in the works, have you followed up on any of those? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been trying to keep up on, on the stories. There's a drug that's used to treat malaria that um, I think, I can't remember where, but I think there are parts of the world where there are a small number of patients who are most vulnerable um, to experiencing severe disease that are being treated experimentally with this drug to see if it helps. Some of the news coming out related to that study has been um, promising, but you know what, what we're hearing in press conferences from Dr. Anthony Fauci at the National Institutes of Health is that it, it would require a larger study in order for that drug to be approved for use to treat SARS coronavirus 2 in the United States. Okay. So not specifically for coronavirus right now, since like you said be, uh, multiple times right before, that there's just not enough information on it. For viruses in general, does stuff like nutrition and exercise help give us a protective or... Some sort of help with the, in our immune system at all? Is there any way to kind of... Combat it a little bit better with diet and or exercise? Sure. I mean, diet and exercise is, is always going to be a good thing, right? So, I mean, a, a healthy diet, getting a healthy amount of exercise is is going to keep your all of your systems functioning robustly and functioning correctly. Um, to say you you guys didn't say say this just now, but if somebody were to say that a diet and exercise will give you um, protection or immunity, that wouldn't be an accurate description of it because in immunity um, scientifically means that you have um, like antibodies, a protective immune response would be antibodies against this virus. Diet and exercise are not going to give you antibodies against this virus. They'll make you healthy. Yeah. 
um, so that uh, if you were to become exposed, uh, you might be able to handle it a little bit better, but you'll still become infected. If you eat well, if you exercise and are exposed to this virus, you still um, stand a good chance of becoming infected. But it's more just how resilient we could be while we're, you know, sick and just if the yeah, body's yeah. healthy, we're better off, obviously, sure. right? Yeah, stay healthy. I mean, you want you want your respiratory system to work well. You want to have healthy lungs um, in order to uh, survive infection with this virus or to have only mild symptoms. So certainly eat well and exercise. But don't think that doing those things... Um, it exempts you from having to practice other public health me- public health measures like social distancing yeah. and hand washing and covering the cough and sneeze. Oh, I gotcha. Well, is there any? Do you know if like just you know along with our diet, supplementing some sort of you know vitamin C, vitamin D, elderberry, anything like that? Do you know if it helps or are we people kind of just wasting their time with this? Um, again, those things. I'm not terribly familiar on what the health benefits are of elderberry and vitamin C, vitamin D. If those things keep you a healthy human being, Got it. it's fine yeah. to continue doing those things. But um, I, I would I would be careful that you don't um, get into a false sense of security that these things are going to protect you from becoming infected Got or it. prevent you from spreading the virus to somebody else. And then with that false sense of security, you fail to engage in other um, simple behaviors like hand washing, um, keeping yourself six feet away from people with symptoms. So just to make it very clear for our listeners, anything that does help just make you healthier is not definitely do it. It's just not going to protect you 100% from the virus because it doesn't give you the antibodies that stops the virus. It just makes it so that right. you're healthier and healthier is better. Yeah. Healthier is always better. I mean, yeah. you, if you're healthy, people exposed to this virus will still become infected. Um, they, they would probably do better. The The course of their disease would be less severe um, if you're healthier, but you're not going to have any, any, uh, any, any immunity to this virus just by eating well and exercising. No, that's, yeah. that's actually, that's a really good point to make though. Just, that people yeah. don't start getting all, you know, think they're exempt from having to do the social distancing and all that. And yep. especially now that, you know, it's as of Sunday, the 20, what, 22nd, I feel like we got to date all our episodes. I mean, we have our first official case here in Butte County. So yeah. it's spreading yeah. pretty rapidly and it's kind of scary that it's here now, which is why we're doing this over, to, over you know, Skype, you know. Yep. So we've already you've already talked a little bit about mutations and immunity so we actually had a question from uh, sarah from basis who couldn't make it and her question was um with all the mutations that you've discussed and that what she's heard that there have been a few mutations of coronavirus already uh what does this mean in terms of vaccines would this be something that we're always susceptible to kind of like the the flu you need to get your flu vaccine because it mutates slightly every time? Or is it something that one vaccine could take care of this strand? So that's a good question. Nobody really knows yet whether this virus will will burn out and go away and we won't see it again. Um, or that's, that's what happened to SARS coronavirus in 2003. It, circulated for six months, never in the United States, but it circulated for six months and then kind of went away. 
So nobody knows whether this virus will go away similar to SARS or whether it will become something that we just contract seasonally and, and circulates seasonally through humans. That's yet to be determined. Okay. Uh, mut- mutations, though, um, you know, yeah, of course the virus is mutating. Um, all viruses mutate. Um, as as an as a virus with an RNA genome, this coronavirus has a higher mutation rate than than viruses with DNA genomes. This virus um, has acquired some mutations since it first emerged out of China, but it's not mutating. This is coming from work by Dr. Trevor Bedford at the Fred Hutchinson uh, Cancer Research Institute in Seattle. He's a computational biologist, and he's tracking the evolution of this virus since its emergence in China. The mutation rate is no faster than it would be expected, than than what would be expected, given the nature of the virus. It's mutating at about the same rate as seasonal influenza viruses. And at this point, none of the mutations that the virus has acquired since it emerged uh, look like adaptable mutations. That So that means the virus isn't adapting to become better at infecting humans or better at transmitting or it's, and it's not it's not mutating to become a virus that causes more severe disease. Uh, well, that, that's it, reassuring to hear. Actually. It's basically just changing bit by bit. Randomly. Not, yeah, right. It's, it's random. Right. So, I mean, if you go back to your your basic biology, your basic evolutionary biology, mutations are random. Evolution doesn't have a direction. Um, mutations that are beneficial or, or neutral might be selected for. Mutations that are detrimental to the virus will be selected against, meaning we won't see those mutations pop up in the circulating virus because they will have been detrimental to the virus. But I want to I want to go back to you. You tried to you tied this question into you know, does this mean anything for the vaccine? Yeah. It potentially could mean something for the vaccine if so that spike protein, that's the protein again that the virus uses to attach to a host cell and to get into a host cell. When 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 we are infected naturally, the antibodies that we generate that will protect us from subsequent infection will be antibodies that are directed against that spike protein. So if you think of the spike protein sticking out from the virus and it has to stick to something that is sticking out of our cells in order for the virus to get into a cell. If you've got an antibody that's bound to that spike protein, now that spike protein can't bind to our cells, the virus oh, is neutralized. Got it. Uh, there are other ways for antibodies to be protective, but but it's simple to think of it that way. A virus binds to the spike, uh, sorry, an antibody binds to the spike protein and now the virus can't attach to a host cell. So, it, for, so I mean, let's compare this to the flu. Does you know, we have to keep doing vaccines for the flu. It, so I mean, w- something that would be kind of not so good would if that spike protein changes, you know, seasonally. And like you said, it hasn't been around long enough. But is right. that is that spike protein what would determine if this is seasonal or if it just stays sure. the same? Absolutely. Yeah. So influenza viruses have a similar protein. It's not called spike. Uh, it's called something else. But it has a similar protein in the, the vaccine induces an antibody response against that protein. So if we become infected with an influenza virus, uh, the antibodies bind to that protein and in- inhibit infection. But influenza viruses, um, as, as we all know, um, mutate and change from, from, from year to year. And so occasionally the vaccine has to be updated 
and we have to get a new vaccine every year. If this SARS coronavirus 2 becomes something that circulates seasonally, then yeah, it's quite possible that it will um, adapt and change each year um, so that we might need a new vaccine each year. But that that's you know, this is an open question. Nobody yeah. really knows whether that's the case or not yet. What's the general timeline for, I mean, just in general, for vaccines to be made? I know there's a lot of, you know, FDA got to be approved, this, that. This one seems to be kind of, there's a lot of sense of urgency for this one. I mean, what's yeah, there is urgency, and urgency is good, and there are people working on this. Um, I'm not sure what the what the typical course of, of time is to develop a vaccine. I, I think 12 to 18 months is what we're hearing. Jeez. For this virus, if everything goes well, and that, that seems like kind of a streamlined, expedited process wow. even, to have it be 12 to 18 months. I mean, and okay. there's a lot of reason for that. A lot, I imagine the last thing, you know, FDA wants to approve is something that's going to give people side effects, which is why there's so much extensive, you know, testing, got to make sure it's good in all aspects, right? Yep. So, you know, several levels of, of clinical trials have to be performed. Um, the, the earliest clinical trials will be with relatively few people. And actually, there's a, a trial of a vaccine that just started last week. And it's a very small trial, just about 40 or 50 people. What they're looking at initially is, is the vaccine safe? Um, and does the vaccine induce an antibody response that looks like it would protect that individual if they were to become infected? That's a small study. And then from there, they'll, they'll scale that up to a study that uh, includes thousands of people. So since we've been talking about vaccines and we know that there are individuals out in the public that are anti-vaxxers, and one of, well, and one of the <laughs> reasons I've heard of anti-vaxxers saying that vaccines don't work and all this other stuff is that they got the flu shot or flu vaccine yeah. and then they had the symptoms and they pretty much got the flu. Could you explain how that is? What? How do vaccines work in a simple manner for a general population? Sure. So, um, vaccine is exposing an individual to uh, a weakened or inactivated pathogen, or, uh, or or just a part or subunit of that pathogen. Our immune system sees it as foreign. Our immune system can't really tell the difference. If you give somebody a killed influenza virus, they just see structurally our immune cells see influenza virus um, protein and antigen. We respond to that, that, that antigen delivered through a vaccine in a manner similar to how we would respond if we were exposed naturally, meaning we'll generate... Um, hopefully, a, a protective antibody response without experiencing the disease that's caused by the pathogen. And then when we are exposed naturally to the pathogen, to the live whole pathogen, we'll have B cells primed and ready to go to produce antibodies to neutralize that pathogen so that it does not infect um, with severe disease. Okay. 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 Well, um, got another question from Sarah. She she asked... Oh, sorry. Um, Can I... I want to... What's that? I'm sorry to interrupt. I want to deal with another part of your question, though, because you were asking about um, somebody who, who gets the flu shot and then they have these uh, symptoms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. they get the flu. So, I mean, when you, when you get an influenza virus infection, naturally, the symptoms that you experience are caused by the response. 
So if you are exposed to influenza virus, either a weakened form of the virus or a killed version of the virus by immunization, your immune response, your, your immune system is still responding to that vaccine. So you, you can, some people will experience some symptoms. They may have, um, they, they may experience fatigue. They may experience a low-grade fever because the immune system is responding to the vaccine antigen. You, you, you can't get influenza virus from the flu shot because that's a killed virus vaccine. Okay, so th- there were a few times our connection kind of uh, glitched on us, so not everything was okay. clear. But the summary yeah. of what you just told us is that because you're given a killed version of the flu or whatever it is that you're getting vaccinated against, your body does not see it as necessarily live, dead, this, strand that. It just sees it as a foreign body and is responding, or the immune system responds to fight against it. So if we have a vaccine and we, or take a vaccine and we start experiencing some of the symptoms, it's because our body is just doing what it does of reacting to this foreign body. That's right. And whatever symptoms a person might have, um, in response to a vaccine, pale in comparison to um, what they would experience with a full-blown influenza infection. The symptoms would be far worse with an actual influenza infection than they are with the vaccination. Okay. It almost sounds like the one that gets the vaccinated and experiences slight symptoms is the one that really needed it. Yeah, and those those people don't have the flu. The flu shot doesn't give you the flu. The flu shot can give you some mild um, flu-like symptoms. Yeah. That's your immune response doing what it is supposed to do um, as, as after it detects the vaccine. Okay, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, I wanted to hit you with, uh, with another question from Sarah. She asks, um, what's the estimated timeline on this? Will the RO simply slow down on its own once mo- more of us have been infected? So, yeah, that's the hope. I mean, that's why these social distancing measures are being put in place. We're being asked to stay home uh, more and reduce our contact with others in the community. Yeah, they're talking about that flattening the curve. Is that what you're talking about? Flattening the curve, yeah. So flattening the curve um, is slowing the, the rate of spread of this virus through the community so that we don't all show up at the hospital at the same time, right? So if, if you think of your your home, what's easier to deal with? If everybody in your house gets sick one person at a time, or if everybody is sick at the same time? Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's really well put, actually. Yeah. So, so flattening the curve is, is a way to decrease the rate of spread of the virus so that our healthcare infrastructure does not become overwhelmed so that we're able to um, care for those who are experiencing most severe disease. Okay. 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 And uh, given the lengthy timeline, what do you think of the suppressive measures such as shelter in place? I mean, do you think they're going to be sustainable for the length of the timeline or are they overshooting at all? Or with all the sanitation happening, would you expect that some of the bacteria that is getting killed as you sanitize everything is going to come back with a a stronger version of it due to it adapting. Yeah. So I mean, it's a virus again, not a bacterium, but so, I mean, which question to deal with first here. I mean, (laughs) there's a lot. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think the social distancing measures are extreme. Um, they're 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 inconvenient. Nobody nobody's enjoying this. It's certainly going to be difficult on on the economy, on small businesses, yeah. especially. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, in that sense, it's difficult, but they're not extreme in the sense that uh, we're doing more than we need to okay. to halt the spread of For this sure. virus. Um, it, I, I, I think the the recommendations that are in place, what we're being asked to do, are are perfectly appropriate. All right, okay. and th- the more the more people comply, the sooner this is all over. So going back to uh, Trevor Bedford at the Fred Hutch in Seattle, um, he's he's running models that show if we decrease our time in the community, our exposure to others in the community, just by 50%, we can reduce the number of infections by about 80%. So wow. if we comply, if we, if we comply with this, then, you know, maybe in a few weeks or a month, um, some of these restrictions will be lightened. Right now, nobody's putting a really hard timeline on it in, in terms of how long will we have to be like this because nobody really knows yet yeah. uh, how long we have to be like this. Okay. Well, part of the question that I asked just to clarify was doing all the sanitation measures for the virus, do you think that would lead to, let's say, the coronavirus is taken care of, vaccines, it goes away, but as a result to all the sanitation that there will be some bacteria that start popping up as being resistant to many forms of antibacterial oh oh yes oh sorry i I misunderstood when you said that the first time i mean you so so these sanitizers purell lysol these things that we purchase even just your hand soap uh regular old-fashioned bar soap those things that we use don't lead to um bacterial evolution or or antibiotic resistance because so so your hand sanitizers are alcohol based um something like lysol one of the the key active components of active ingredients of lysol is is an alcohol those kinds of things will kill bacteria and really bacteria don't have ways of becoming resistant to alcohols and so no i I don't think there's any concern about antibiotic resistant bacteria emerging out of this attempt to to deep clean and sanitize surfaces because of the coronavirus okay that's actually very informative yeah well uh one of the things i wanted to just talk about was i mean just the timeline in general we're looking at countries like china and italy do you think italy kind of accurately represents what i mean because they're about a week and a half ahead of us correct and just the exposure of it i mean are you kind of looking at that and and seeing how if we're taking a glimpse into what it'll be like in a week and a half. I hope not. Um, you know, this after the fact, when this is, when this is over, uh, I'm sure people will spend public health officials, epidemiologists, um, healthcare professionals will spend a lot of time taking a good hard look at what happened in Italy. Um, it's, it's hard to know right now exactly why Italy is in the situation it's in because it's in, it's in the thick of it. Um, and all of the data aren't in yet. So uh, it, it, it's, it's hard to say why Italy is where it is. So it's hard to say whether we will be there in a couple of weeks or not. Certainly, 
um, you know, if we flatten that curve, if we comply with these uh, public health recommendations to to uh, distance ourselves from one another, then I, I think it's I think we'll not turn into Italy for sure. Got it. So it sounds like uh, that's a worst case scenario. If we don't listen to what the you know the measures that have been placed, we could end up like that. And so there, we there's. Could. Yeah, yeah, we could. We we don't know if we were to not do any of the social distancing. I don't know if we would become Italy or not. Perhaps not. But because we don't know, yeah. um, it's important to do what we can now that we know will will help us not become like Italy. Got it. Got okay. it. All right. Well, I got another question from Sarah. It's a it's pretty loaded. This last one here. Um. So we'll kind of just knock it out chunk by chunk. How long yep. will it take to figure out, you know, how this is really being transmitted? Has that been figured out yet, or is this kind of still speculation? Yeah, I mean, we're we're pretty sure it's respiratory droplets, um, it, similar to influenza virus. I mean, it's, it's a respiratory infection, so it's being spread in people's coughs and sneezes. So when you cough and sneeze, you you um, sneeze out these very small, almost microscopic respiratory droplets. And the virus is contained in those respiratory droplets. They can travel about six feet, which is where the recommendation comes from to distance yourself about six feet from Got people it. who experience okay who are experiencing symptoms. So another question that she had that was tied to the first one was, uh, how do they determine how this is transmitted? Is some of that based on the symptoms that you have? That if you sneeze a lot, that is probably transmitted through uh, respiratory because that's how it's getting out of you. Yeah, so there there are ways to kind of in a laboratory setting mimic uh, respiratory or respiratory droplets to mimic a cough or a sneeze. There are machines, there's equipment that does this, and so you could you could I don't know if this is how it's been done for this virus yet, but you you could um, you could model a cough or a sneeze. You could model the creation of respiratory droplets that contain this virus. Right, and, and if you can recover infectious virus from those mock respiratory droplets, there there are ways experimentally to model the production of respiratory droplets through coughs and sneezes. There's equipment that can do this, um, and so people can attempt to recover infectious virus from these mock respiratory droplets. Um, and if, if infectious virus can be recovered from respiratory droplets, then it's safe to assume that that's how the virus is being transmitted. There are also aerosol. There's also aerosol transmission. Aerosol droplets are, are smaller than respiratory droplets, and they might hang out in the air a little bit longer. Um, there's, there's very limited evidence right now that this virus can become aerosolized and hang out in the air for a longer period of time. It's believed that it is the larger respiratory droplets in your coughs and sneezes that are transmitted virus. Got it. All right. That's actually perfect. You answered uh, one of Sarah's other questions. Yeah. Was <laughs> is this uh, hanging out in the air now? Uh, We'd also seen that. Uh, well, I'm, I'm reading reports that China is starting to kind of they're on the decline of all this. Are you? Are you trusting, you know, things that are coming out of there? I'm hearing that, they, you know, they don't like to, they're not putting out accurate numbers, but I'm also hearing that they're being extremely transparent with what's going on. I mean, what's your take on, on that? Yeah, so their response time to this outbreak was, was uh, quicker 
than their response to SARS coronavirus in 2003. Um, So there is an improvement. So what I'm talking about is the time time that it took them to report the outbreak to the World Health Organization. Uh, It was quicker turnaround time for this than it was in 2003. So that's good. That's good. However, there's there's some um, evidence that they didn't take this seriously enough or did not respond quickly enough early on. Um, I don't know. I'm really not in a position to to make a claim yeah. on that one way or another. Um, I'm sure public health officials will go back and, and look at the pub, the response from China when this is all over. But yeah, I'm, I'm hearing the same thing, that um, they are reporting fewer new cases each day. Um, and uh, that's that's the word that's coming from the World Health Organization as well. I don't know what data that they're working with. If, if they're dependent just on what the Chinese government is saying, um, I, I'm not sure uh, how reliable that information is right now. It's certainly, I mean, right now, and we're, we're looking for any kind of a, a glimmer of hope yeah. Yeah, for no any kidding. bright spots. So, so yeah. I, I certainly hope that's the case. Yeah, yeah. And have you read it also? Any reports on just uh, different blood types having being more or less susceptible? You know, just no. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not familiar with. I've I've, I've read a few articles on it, but I just um, that's kind of just a random one that I've kind of thought about. Uh, you know, it's, it, there's claims out there that you know that, that the ones that are O are um, less susceptible, and the ones that are you know type A and B. Noel's looking for a small bragging head because he is type O and the article said that type O is most resistant. <laughs> I need a glimmer of hope here, man. <laughs> you're, you're, you're seeing an article uh, on this related specifically to this virus? Uh, yeah, actually, I should I'll, I should forward okay. you that. Um, I ran to it actually uh, not too long ago, but yeah, I'll send that to you after this. See what you think. Yeah, yeah, that'd be interesting to take a look at. I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, awesome. All right, well. No bragger. <laughs> if it, all right well thank you very much for taking your time with us i mean i know you, you got a lot going on and uh things are kind of chaotic right now but uh i appreciate oh, you taking yeah. up you know being able to help work with us here and help spread a little truth among everything people are reading yeah no no problem i'm happy to to uh have this conversation and you guys done a good thing by having on your podcast so thank you awesome well thank you you take care all right all right thanks bye <laughs> see you Thank you guys for listening to the Nerds and Iron podcast. Don't forget to give us a follow at Nerds and Iron underscore podcast. And remember, we are offering online training with the one and only Knack Attack Fit. Andrew, you can follow him at Knack Attack Fit or at Iron Nerd Moto. You can follow Noel at Noel Cast Iron Fit. You could follow Chris at cbrant42. You could follow Thomas at Thomas underscore Ratana34. And you can follow me at BrownPsycho100. And you can follow my YouTube channel. Thanks, guys.